Welcome to the Beer Driven Devs podcast, where your hosts, Matt Goldman and Liam Elliott, share their experiences and passion for technology, software, and of course, beer. So be sure to grab yourselves a cold one and join them for this week's chat. Good evening, Matt. I'm excited that we finally got the opportunity to record this podcast. This is something that you and I have been speaking about for a while now, and we've finally got around to recording it. So this podcast was your idea, an opportunity for us to nerd out about technology, software, and our passion for homebrew. Is there anything that you'd like to add to that? I think that pretty much covers it. I I think the only thing that I think both of us are keen to talk about every now and then is probably leadership. Leadership, yes. I, I am, I think I on my website particularly and I like to say I'm a student of leadership I think there's a lot to learn in that space Um, as you probably aware Matt I studied it at university I did my master's in leadership so it's definitely something that alongside technology alongside beer is one of my passions at the moment for sure yeah so yeah that's why I called it out because I've seen that on your website and um, like you said you studied it at university but continue to study it throughout life as well do we all I think that I think so and I think that's one thing I did learn that it's not something not something that you you're born with not something that you just pick up one day and and know what you're doing it's something that we all strive to learn and and to improve upon and you know during a lot of my um a lot of my life recently and a lot of my learnings is that leadership's one of those things that we can apply at every single aspect of our lives and it doesn't matter whereabouts you are in your organization or your family or your friendship group i think leadership is something that can be applied at every aspect of our lives yeah i agree i I really do agree and and i think um just going back to the student of leadership thing uh it's a lot like development really isn't it in that it's something that you choose to to pursue if you have a passion for lifelong learning Absolutely, absolutely, and I think we're we're blessed in the world of, in the world of technology. Well, some say blessed, um, in that we have to constantly be learning, right? Yeah, I've, I've well, as a, an introduction to myself, I've been in this industry for, and I think you're much the same, well over or close to tw- twenty years now. And one thing I've learned is that the industry doesn't stay still. Yeah, and the moment I stop learning, the moment I stop pushing myself is the moment I start becoming one of those dinosaurs that um, that starts looking after all those legacy applications and ends up fading away along with COBOL, Fortran and, and the rest of the mainframe um, ecosystem. Yeah, although, of course, those things are still around. They are, but... And you know, thriving. They're, they're, they're there, they're, but, you know, they're not... I don't know, they're not pushing the boundaries as much. So no, of course, my yeah, thirst for learning, my thirst for learning there just disappears yeah for sure you know are you, um um we're getting way off topic now but this is fun so i'll keep doing it um back when i uh, back when i used to interview candidates for positions in uh, infrastructure support like for sort of sysadmin and and you know that kind of stuff mm-hmm. one of the questions I, i'd always ask is um describe your home lab now of course not as relevant now because people's labs are in azure or, or aws or whatever else but this was always one of our inter- interview questions was describe your home lab 
um and some people would like really you could see like you know the lights going on and they get really excited and then they'd spend a while going onto it and their their project and what they're currently adding to it and and others would say you know describe it in a little detail and then you get those that say i you know i don't i don't have a home lab um and there's nothing wrong with that um you know it's not for everyone but those were definitely the candidates that that were not going to um uh, excel very quickly in yep. their in their roles and, and you know it wasn't a deal breaker we would hire people you know that that answered that question with i don't have a home lab but it, it but you know it definitely uh, gives you a good indicator of of you know what what kind of trajectory their career is going to go on mm -hmm. yeah and i've just sort of started taking notes here and i don't know if we want to start talking about that right now i mean it's a good segue into a, a topic to start with um around that sort of interviewing slash and i've got here slash gatekeeping mentality that is quite rife in our industry yeah um just to throw a curveball because i know we haven't discussed this just yet but um it as you were talking about that it just reminded me of a few you know on twitter you see quite often people saying you know if you're if you're not willing to work 80 hours a week or if you're not coding in your spare time then are you really a professional coder <laughs> yeah. and I don't know. I find to me that level of gatekeeping can be quite detrimental to yeah. the industry. But I do appreciate exactly what you were saying that that level of passion is something that you can tell inside of someone. It's just an intrinsic passion that people have for what they do. Yeah. That's not saying that, you know, developers who are just there for their day job um, don't have that passion. But yeah, it's a, it's a different. Well, sorry, I'll just interrupt you there because I, I think that um, there's a difference between saying there's a difference between saying, oh, do those developers have that passion or do they not have that passion? And is that passion required for them to be able to do their job? Mm -hmm. And I think, and you know, I, I don't think I don't think a developer needs to to say, um, oh yeah, you know, I I spend eighty hours a week coding outside of work, you know, and you know. Um, in order for you to say oh this person is worthy of working here or this person is capable of doing their job but it does but someone that does have side projects outside of work it does indicate passion um yeah. and you know th there's nothing wrong with not having that passion but i i do think it is a it 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 does distinguish between the two and i and i think that in any kind of um walk of life whether it's what you're doing for work or what you're doing for as a as a leisure activity, um, I know you've recently taken up um, BJJ, for example, right? You mm -hmm. know, any of these kind of pursuits, you know, you can come in and do your class and go home. You can come in, do your job and go home. And there's nothing wrong with that. And you're going to progress and you're going to be able to do it well enough. But you're not going to be able to keep up. Um, sorry, I keep up is the wrong word because that's that's gatekeeping again. You're not you're not going to um, learn as much as quickly as if you have that passion that drives you to put your own time in it as well absolutely I, I completely agree with that it's um yeah and i think sort of as you were saying that what i was trying to i wanted to get in there was progress right yeah if you've got the passion you, you're gonna have well you're gonna have that extra dedication you're gonna be able to progress a lot more and a lot more rapidly than someone who is less passionate who doesn't do and yeah i mean it, it could be software it could be like you said sport could be uh, like myself, BJJ, it could be uh, anything really. Yeah. And having that extra level of passion means that you want to do the extra reps. Yeah. It means yeah. you're thinking about it. 
and it just you get that extra progression. And by no means is it something that should preclude you from the industry or the job or or anything, but it is something that I think is it's great to see in potential candidates. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and you know, like not not everyone is there to climb the ladder and you know you know get to the top of their game as quick as they can, and and that doesn't mean that they can't do the job. Absolutely. Um, but but yeah, but but at the same time, yes, you know, it, it really does it does make for a standout candidate. And mm. now, I, in in my view, I, I think there's nothing wrong with with sort of saying I'm here to do my job and and you know call it quits at the end of the day and go home as long as you have the capability to do the, the job, um, that's fine. And I also think there's nothing wrong with having a burning passion and going home and working on all your side projects or, you know, um, you know, spending extra days down at the mat doing extra drills or, or whatever, or, you know, there's nothing wrong with that either. But here's the thing, what you're saying about um, Twitter, right, and gatekeeping, and when you see those, those posts that are like, oh, if you're not doing 80 hours a week, are you really a programmer? Now, the... the the, the somewhat more subtle side of that is, um, you know, even the less direct where, you know, it, it's not even saying, oh, if you're not doing this thing that I'm doing and if you're not showing the level of dedication that I'm showing, then you're not good enough. It, it, the, the kind of more insidious aspect of it is is the sly way of saying, well, I'm doing all this, you know, and, and it's it, it's without without sort of, you know, leaving it unsaid without saying, oh, well, if you're not doing this, then you're not good enough. It's kind of a badge of honor. And it's part of this like hustle culture. Right. And, it, and it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm I'm working 80 hours a week. I, you know, I work 60 hours at my regular job and then another however many hours on my on my side projects, hustling yeah. and so on and so forth. And I think if you have a passion for it and you're doing it because you love it and you really enjoy it, I think that's really awesome. Um, and I, I do think it's, you know, uh, in a can I, I don't know why we're still talking about candidates and interviewing, but <laughs> it, it is a kind of good indicator when it comes to that. But if, you, if you're doing it to basically to boast and show off, then, um, well, then you're just a dick. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I think just to close that off, like, I think the part that we're sort of glossing over there is the purpose of a lot of those tweets is purely for engagement, right? They're trying yeah. to get the trying to get the audience arced up and trying to actually get people to comment and to to share and to retweet just purely for engagement, right? Yeah. Yeah, we should talk about um rage bait one of these days. <laughs> rage bait, yep. Uh let me add that to the list. Gosh, it's yeah, the world of social media these days, huh? Yeah. But, um, speaking of speaking of rage bait, that is actually kind of a, a good segue into today's topic. Yep. Um, but you know, I'll let you. I'll let you finish. No, no, I was going to make the same segue. Oh, oh there you go. So yeah, so I, I mentioned the other day, Liam, that I, that I really like to talk about unity today and um, uh, the the drama. And there's there's definitely been a lot of rage bait, and there's been a lot of genuine rage, and there's been a lot of um, quite reasonably, arguably justified rage um, mm -hmm. about. Uh, the fiasco over Unity's changing license and terms that's that's been playing out over the past week and week or two. Yeah. Um, now there was a bit of a change on the weekend a couple of days ago, mm -hmm. um, but there is still obviously a lot of fallout from that, and there's still a lot of people that are quite upset. So, so do you, have you been following this story? Do you know what's been happening? Look, I didn't know anything about this until you raised it with me the other week, um, which was really interesting because I'm not in the game dev space i'm not in that um that space personally um but i know you are and i know you're 
got quite a passion in that area. And when you raise that, it sort of made me do my own research, as I like to do, and I like to to, um, to see what news is going on. And yeah, it was interesting. It was. I saw some. I was looking at it again this morning, um, and there's some interesting articles out there about about the updates that Unity have made. And I guess just to cover off what um, people may not be aware of, who who you know listening to this for the first time, or maybe in in a few years' time when this is all done and dusted. Yeah. Did you want to just fill them in on that? Yeah. Why don't we Why don't we start um, with what Unity is, right? So Unity is a game engine. And what that means is that it is a tool for making games. So it's it's uh, a piece of software that you can install and it runs on uh, Windows or Mac OS or does it run on Linux? I'm not sure. I think so. Um, it definitely runs on Windows and Mac OS because I've used it on both of those. Um, and it has a bunch of tools for creating 2D and 3D games. Um, it's got, you know, sort, sort of support some animation. It's got an asset store. Um, and it lets you write scripts, and the scripts are written in C sharp, and uh, you can target your games for uh, mobile phones. As you said, I'm in that space. I actually do have a game um, that I released for mobile phones. Um, you can target PC, web. Um, it's got XR tools. You can target mm-hmm. games consoles as well. So if the, the games console is a side is a bit trickier because you have to have a special package that's licensed from. You know the games, the games console publisher. So if you want to do PlayStation, you've got to get a special package from Sony, and same with Nintendo and, and Microsoft, right? Um, yeah. So so there's a, a couple of there's actually a few game engines around, quite a lot actually, but there's a few big ones in this space. Um, a lot of the a lot of big game studios have proprietary engines that they use themselves that they um, create themselves, but then there's open ones that anyone can use to to make a game. Now, the two big ones, arguably, are Unity and Unreal Engine. Now, Unreal Engine came from uh, what it sounds like, Unreal. Uh, so there was a game, a first-person shooter that came out uh, uh, many years ago called Unreal. Um, mm-hmm. And Unreal was the evolution. So in, in, in first-person shooters, we had, um, you know, Doom being the big, the big one. Not that it was the first, but that was the, the big one that put the genre on the map. Um, and then the next evolution in that space was Quake. And the difference between Quake and, and Doom was that Quake had, you know, 3D objects as opposed to sprites. So it wasn't just the environment. And then we had Unreal. And and the big jump with Unreal was was um, went alongside the the jump in 3D graphics from uh, bitmap bitmapping, sorry, texture mapping to uh, shaders. Yep. Um, and Unreal had, you know, when when it first came out, showed off all these like really cool water effects that we kind of take for granted now, and a bunch of other stuff. Um, anyway, so Unreal as a game grew and evolved, um, and the engine grew and evolved, and other people wanted to use the engine to make games, uh, and it eventually got released as a product that you can use. So these are these are the two main competing products in this space, but there are countless other ones as well. Now, there's a bit of an image associated with both of these, rightly or wrongly, and in fact, wrongly, um, uh, but that image is that triple a or big games will tend to use unreal engine and smaller indie games or mobile games will tend to use unity and there isn't an element of truth to that but it's not necessarily correct in fact it's incorrect that you can only use unreal engine for making big triple a games or that you can only use unity for making mobile games or indie games but those are kind of the images associated with those 
Um, and the history of Unity is a little bit different from the history of, of Unreal in that it was it was started as a passion project. It was started intentionally specifically as a game engine, purely as a game engine, as opposed to this is the engine we made for this game. You know, let's mm -hmm. let other people use it. And it was started as a passion pro project by a very small group of people. And the, the number of people that work for that company has grown a thousandfold. So it's now a much bigger group of people and it's been taken public and everything else that goes along with that that we'll talk about um later yeah. but, but but the main the main part of of this story is that unity has traditionally been associated with hobbyists and indie developers and people that make games for passion whereas uh, unreal in engine has traditionally been associated with people that make games for profit and bigger studios and bigger companies so uh, over the years as unity has grown and user unity has become more business focused um there and especially since it's been taken public because now they have legal obligations to shareholders that they didn't have before. Um, so as all of this has happened, there have been changes in the, the terms of service, the terms of use and the contract between um, the people that use it to make games and, and the people that make the product. And this all came to a head, you know, a couple of weeks ago with the latest announced changes. And it's not the first time there's been controversy over proposed changes to the terms, but uh, it, it's happened again recently and, and it's been a bit of a big deal. And, and that's why I wanted to, to talk about it. So specifically, what has happened is, in fact, uh, another bit of background is that the pricing model for both of these products, right? So again, I'm using Unreal Engine and Unity as the examples, even though mm -hmm. there are other these are the, the kind of main ones. Unreal Engine has a, a, a profit share model, a revenue share model, um, and Unity has a kind of combination of, of profit share and various other forms of licensing, right? So with Unity, there's a free version and you can use it for free and you can use it to produce as many games or demos or whatever other software that you want to use to create with it. Um, and there's a threshold uh, above which if you earn a certain amount of money, you are then obliged to pay some money to Unity. There's also a pro version, which you can pay for to use Unity. And then that threshold is higher and it comes with some other perks as well, uh, which I'll get into a bit later on. Yep. Now, what happened a couple of weeks ago, right, is that Unity announced this new pricing change. And then, uh, in fact, it wasn't a new pricing change. It was a new, a whole new pricing model. They introduced what they called a runtime fee. And what that meant is that you, as someone who creates and publishes a game with Unity, would pay them a fee based on what they called per install. So let's say I make a game and I sell mm -hmm. it for you know 25 bucks you buy it for 25 bucks let's say you buy it through steam yep. you buy it through steam you can install it as many times as you want so you could literally bankrupt me by just uninstalling and reinstalling my game ah. um, and unity you know they they say you know people were saying well how are you tracking installs and they said it's for a proprietary method that we're not going to tell anyone how we're doing it so that obviously raised privacy concerns it raised concerns what about pirate copies you know people people are going to be installing those you know, without buying it um, so yeah, it was a very controversial decision. It made a lot of people very upset for a number of reasons. One of the biggest reasons was that um, it was retroactive. So if you published a game five years ago and people were still buying it and, and still installing it, these new terms were going to come into effect in January, coming up January 2024, mm -hmm. but they would apply to any games that you... So if you've got six games on Steam or wherever else, Anyone that installs those games would start counting towards that uh, install count. Right. So yeah, it, it, it's uh, it, it's pissed a lot of people off. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, I mean, yeah, if you've got your business model 
up and running. And I think there's a lot to discuss about that. But if your business model is based off selling these games and you've got your, you've done all your marketing and all your modeling and everything around that, and then all of a sudden your fundamentals have just been changed under the covers. Yeah. Like you said, it could quite easily bankrupt you. Yeah, theoretically. And you touched on an important point, right, which is that one of the biggest complaints people are making is that yeah, if I'm running a business, uh, I need to have some level of predictability here. I need to know what my costs are going to be. And if I can't predict my costs, I can't run a business. Look, I think this goes well beyond the discussion of unity. And I, I don't want to sidetrack too much, but if you go back to the days when Facebook first started, and businesses, yeah. there were a lot of businesses that built themselves off the Facebook platform. Yeah. Um, you know, I know I've known or have known in the past people who have built Twitter clients or Twitter applications that tapped into the API. All of a sudden, Elon Musk comes along, whatever it is, five, ten years later after they, these other people have already built up their business model, got their businesses up and running. Elon Musk comes along, turns around and says, actually, by the way, what you used to get for free or for a small amount, we're going to actually, you know, start charging you 10, 100 times the price. And I think there is a risk there in building your application or building your business on someone else's platform like that. Yeah, there is a big difference though, right? So the, the, the difference is that, you know, Something like Twitter is, you know, it's a web platform. It's, you know, it does come with a lot of risk because, well, mm -hmm. and I think the same is true of, of people that build their businesses based around any online platform. There are people that have businesses based on Facebook, like you said, like Instagram. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if, if Instagram gets shut, shut down and your whole business is that you're an influencer, yeah. you're in trouble, right? Yep. Although, you know, you've probably got things on other platforms as well, but but you get the idea, right? Mm -hmm. with, with Unity, you know, the idea is that either you pay for Unity Pro, um, and and you know, this is this is Unity is not a platform, they're not hosting your product. It's a it's a development tool. Yep. Right. And so it, you know, if you buy it or you know, you you get a specific version and that comes with some terms of service, and then you build a product using this development tool and then you sell it. And then, you know, years later, they come along and say, actually, and again, right, this is where the difference is between your Twitter example and this, right? The Twitter example comes, you know, Elon Musk comes along and says, you can't use this API anymore unless you pay 10 times more. Well, then you can't yeah. use the API anymore. But it doesn't affect all of the, you know, tweets that you've already published or, yeah. you know, whatever else you've already done. With Unity, what they, what they were saying was that, no, no, even a game that you released seven years ago is subject to this new runtime fee. And, you know, again, this is one of the bigger um, concerns that people have is about Unity uh, retroactively changing their terms of service. And there's an interesting bit of history here as well. Uh, they did something similar in 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, they published some new and controversial terms of service. And they said, yeah, this is retroactive as well. doesn't matter what version you're on. doesn't matter. Um, you know, this, this, this applies to any version of Unity, any product released under any version, any time. Um, and people kicked up a stink, quite rightly, said this isn't fair, this isn't cool. So Unity said, all right, tell you what we'll do, right? We'll, we'll, we'll walk that back and we will publish a GitHub page with our terms of service. So you can not only see what they currently are, but you can see what they've ever been at any time. And so you can see what versions apply to, you know, the version of the product that you're using. Mm -hmm. So 
Funnily enough, not long before this new announcement, a couple of weeks ago, they took that down on GitHub. So they knew. Yeah. Yeah. They knew something. Uh, well, well uh, apparently they um, they took it down because quote unquote no one was using it. But so yes, they, they were pre Sorry, I shouldn't say they knew, but they were preempting something. It certainly seems that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, and it's gosh, there's so much to unpack there, right? There's yeah. a lot to unpack. Like, well, first, first things first. So this is a game engine, as yeah. you said, and to have this game game that's built on that engine, you need to have the runtime installed. Understandable, right? Yeah. I build a .NET application. You need to have .NET available. Well, you used to these days. It's all self-hosted, but you know you need the runtime there. What happens if I've got two Unity-based games on my machine? How many runtimes do I have installed? Well, I mean, it's mono, right? So it's packaged with the game. Yeah, okay. So it is. So it is packaged with the game. So yeah. So it's not, not like I install it once on my machine and have it there for the 15 games I've got on my machine. Yeah, and, and look, the, the, the term runtime fee is arbitrary anyway. Interesting, yeah. It's, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think going back to it, like pulling out the terms and conditions and saying, oh, those ones are, we're no longer using those. I bet you there's a condition in their user agreement that basically says we reserve the right to update. Of course. That terms of course there is. That you've already signed up for. Yeah. But how many times can a company do that before they burn their customer base? That is the $64 million question, isn't it, right? And that, that is, so So I mentioned that uh, they kind of walked back a bunch of this stuff over the weekend, right? So they published this article on the weekend and they've made some changes, right? So the first change is that, um, so I mentioned that there's Unity Personal and Unity Pro. Yep. So Unity Personal, which is what you are allowed to use for free, and you can build and, and publish and release games with this has a threshold of $100,000, right? So they've now increased that to $200,000. So you can earn now through this game, in fact, not just any game, through for in, in your total revenue, if it's $200,000 a year through your games made with Unity, mm -hmm. uh, at that point, you can still use Unity Personal, right? Um, above that, you have to pay for Unity Pro. So they've increased that from $100,000 to $200,000. They So that's you know, not something they've walked back. That's supposedly something that's a bit better. Right. Um, there's also a requirement with the Unity Personal. There's a made with Unity splash screen that you have yep. to show at the start of your game. You can't remove it. It's just in the engine. Unless you buy Unity Pro, it just builds it in. Yeah. Um, they've now removed that. Right. So anyone now making a game in Unity doesn't have that anymore. Now, here's the thing. Just a quick tangent about that one. Really, that actually helps them because the problem that they had before that is that you've got, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of really low quality, cheap, quick games being churned out that had that made with unity splash screen and that devalues their brand. Right. And I know yeah. because I'm the author of one of them. And yeah. uh, um, so, you know, so removing that actually helps them. Yep. Right. Now the next thing is this runtime fee, right. Is they say, and I quote, no game with less than a million dollars. And this is all us dollars, obviously, by the way, in trailing yep. 12 month revenue will be subject to the fee. This is about the runtime fee. So they're now saying that um, you're not going to pay the runtime fee unless you're earning a million dollars in trailing 12 month revenue. Um, and they've now said that the revenue share through the runtime fee is capped at 2.5% of the revenue. So in terms of the changes that they're making here, Mm. They're actually on the surface all quite reasonable. Yep. 
Um, oh, and sorry, also, um, they've also clarified that um, uh, the runtime fee is not going to be retroactive. It's only going to be beginning with the LTS version of Unity shipping in 2024. Yes. So if you made a game three years ago, it's not subject to it. It's only new games. So, yeah, they've that worked with Yeah, it is. And then there's a whole new thing about they've brought back this GitHub page, um, and they've now said that the the terms that that whatever terms you, are uh, applicable for the version of Unity that you're using will always be applicable to that version. They're not going to retroactively make changes anymore. So on the surface, it's all like very, very reasonable. But mm -hmm. there, are two, there are two big problems here still, right? One is the introduction of this runtime fee is setting a precedent, right? What that means is that uh, Unity is now effectively saying that uh, it's a royalty, right? Which they didn't have before. Yep. And, you know, while they're saying they're capping it at 2.5% now, it certainly opens it up for changes in the future, even if they don't retroactively change that, which they've said they're not going to, but maybe they will, you know, because this leads into the second, the second big problem, right, which is the erosion of goodwill and the erosion yep. of trust. And if you look at um, a lot of the Unity forums, like on Reddit or on, you know, any other website, this is the big thing that people are talking about, right, is they're saying it doesn't matter what they say, it doesn't matter what they do, we can't trust them anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people saying, you know, I've spent four years on this game. I'm not going to jump ship now. I'll finish this game, but I'm not making another game in Unity. A lot of people saying other, you know, other things, what have you. But yeah, it's the erosion of goodwill. And um, it, it, I, I don't know how, how they recover from that. Uh, you know, one of the suggestions that I see parroted quite commonly, and, you know, I can't comment on this, but I do see it a lot, is uh, fire the CEO. And well, you go, go, go. But the reason the reasoning behind this is because of his background and where he's come from and you know a lot of these policies that he's introduced and, and you know it, it kind of it, it well there's there's again there's a lot more to unpack here but i'll, I'll let you oh no i was gonna say i think um i think that that's just it right like i said before you know I, this is i'm not a game developer i'm not really tied into the unity environment in, into the unity ecosystem so i'm just looking at this from as a bystander's point of view and right now I'm looking at the Unity Twitter page where they announced their changes and obviously there's a lot of kickback there. September 14, we want to acknowledge the confusion and frustration we heard after we announced our new runtime fee policy. We'd like to clarify some of your top questions and concerns. Yeah. Followed, the very next tweet is on September the 18th. Yeah. For the biggest apology, non-apology around. Yeah. Yeah. We have heard you. We apologise for the confusion and angst the runtime fee policy we announced on Tuesday caused. Yep. Right? They're not apologising for what they've done. They're not apologising for the fees. No. They're apologising that it caused confusion. They're apologising that it caused angst. We're sorry that you're anxious and confused. Exactly. Yeah. The biggest non-apology going around. And that's one of my big bugbears, right? And this, I think it comes back to leadership, right? Mm -hmm. Now, yep. the next big, the next thing I want to see, and I'm just trying to dig through here, but I've got a feeling that, was it the CEO that announced the fee updates? Uh, good question. I can't remember. Um, because what I did find interesting was the tweet from today, here's an open letter to our community. Yeah was not from the very top. No, no. It's from um, 
from from Mark Witten, who is uh, what is he head of marketing or something? Um, I did say it somewhere. Now, look, I'm not saying he may not be somewhere near the top. I'm not saying that he is not in a valuable position. All I'm saying is it's quite telling that this open letter addressing the community, which actually says, I want to start with this, I am sorry. Yeah, not we are sorry, I am sorry. But not just that, but that's an apology, right? Yeah. I am sorry. We should have spoken with more of you and we should have incorporated more of your feedback before announcing our new policy. Mm -hmm. Now, that's an apology. Yeah. That's not yeah. saying we are sorry that you, you're upset. That's saying we're sorry for what we've done. Yeah. But again, that has not come from the very, very top, which I just wanted to bring that up because your point there or that the, um, not your point, but what you were saying there that the um, current rhetoric is calling for the head of the CEO. Yeah. Everything I'm seeing from the sidelines is kind of looking like he's sitting in his ivory tower Watching everything well, up. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, and, and again, you're right that it comes to leadership and and what you're saying is, is strikes an, another interesting point, right, which is, as I mentioned, the company was taken public, right, and because they were taken public, they've got an ob uh, obligation legally to their shareholders to return them dividends, right? Yep. They also have an obligation to increase their share prices, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what they don't have an obligation to is to ensure the long-term success of the company. So the board and the CEO are, are operating well within their parameters and their directive uh, by pushing for short-term gain. And this is, you know, and this is a trend and, it, and this isn't, this isn't uh, unique to unity and it, and it isn't unique to um, uh, the public, you know, to, to, you know, public private sector as well it's also present in government and in um well families because that was an example we used earlier friend groups you, you see it all the time um you know there, there's often a push for short-term gain over you know long-term success um gotcha. and you know it, 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 we're talking about goodwill and you know the erosion of goodwill it, it just seems short-sighted to me you know goodwill is something that um businesses actually list on their books you know, it, it, it actually has a dollar value and it's on their books. It does. Um, and they're losing that. I just wanted to flag something, though. Now, obviously, Unity being a US-based company, you and I, we're both based in Australia now. I should know this a bit more as I have recently started my own business. But as a director in Australia, your obligation is to do the best for the company, right? Yeah. You're you can be held liable if you're doing anything that is detrimental to the company. Well, uh, okay, yes, that is true. But there's a difference between being a director of uh, a privately limited company like you are and like I am. Uh, well, more like you are than like I am. Uh, and being uh, an executive officer of a public company. Well, yes, he's the executive officer, correct. And... I guess it's the shareholders are in their right to, and the board are in their right to sack him if he's yeah. not upholding um, upholding his office to the best of his yeah. ability. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the other side to that is that often companies that are um, either, you know, in the red or doing badly or not um, meeting expected growth and that sort of thing, 
sometimes they bring in some someone like this individual uh, i don't know if we can name him or not i mean it's all public information who he is um but often you know uh, you know a board will hire an executive ceo uh, with a directive to say you know actually we just need you to get us out of the shit yeah. um and we need you to um very quickly just turn things around get us some revenue and you know and, and that's all you need to do and and you know often you often see things like that and, and there are different ceos that have different strengths and and lead companies through different times and it's the same thing you know with with political leadership as well and the classic example being someone like winston churchill right or or even you know neville mm -hmm. chamberlain talking around obviously the second world war in the uk and there's you know there are people that are good leaders in peacetime and people that are good leaders in wartime and some that are good in both and and you know some that are good at one that aren't necessarily good at the other and it's the same thing with these kind of companies and, and you know people will often look at something like what's happening at unity now and saying you know this guy can come in and you know he can tank the company and he can tank the stock price and you know <clears throat> destroy the goodwill um and you know they'll get rid of him but he's still got his golden parachute because it, it, it's part of the contract bringing people on right they're not yeah. gonna no one no one is gonna sign a contract to lead a huge company with that level of risk um without a golden parachute right um absolutely well i mean people do but but it, it you know that's that's the usual deal um so he's gonna you know if they do get rid of him he'll have a massive windfall and then he'll bounce right back and go and do the same thing somewhere else and, you know, people look at it and say, how does he get another job? And the reason is that there are plenty of companies around there that want someone to come in, do them some, you know, long term damage that they can damage control later. But just to get them a quick turnaround now. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. I think you're, you're spot on there. Well, I'm again, I'm not sure of the the circumstances, but it does sound from what you're saying, you know, they've they've hired a, a wartime CEO to get them through these rough years and um, set them up for something moving forward. And, you know, that's effectively, that's what Elon did with Twitter, right? Uh, Except he created the war himself. <laughs> yeah. That's he right. buys the place, creates this wartime scenario. Well, you know, and I, again, I don't know the financials, I don't know the ins and outs, but apparently they were running in the red quite a lot. And he comes in wielding his axe, being yeah. a wartime leader, doing making all the calls being ruthless as he needed to be and you know truth be told twitter's still around right uh it is yep yep and, and you know even now that he said that all accounts will be paid accounts it's still there i mean you know it remains a lot of people were saying it will be down it'll fall over and it hasn't yep. so you know um yeah yeah um so i mean yeah sometimes you need that wartime ceo to come in wield the axe get rid of the dead weight be that customers be that employees be that services just get rid of the 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 dead weight and um turn that ship around really so yeah now now this guy at unity has actually been doing the exact opposite of that so he's been taking on more and more and more so there's been um, mergers and acquisitions they they've they um merged with a company called iron source which is an ad company and there was a lot of people worried about that as well mm -hmm. um and it actually ties into this runtime thing, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but also the headcount. Do you remember I said that, that the company has grown a thousandfold? Yep. Um, so, you know, the, the, a lot of the questions saying, you know, well, what are these eight, 9,000 people working on? Because they're not working on the game engine. Yeah. So, um, 
you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, that's another interesting question. Um, and uh, there's a lot of speculation. So you're talking about the rhetoric that you're seeing at the moment being about people asking for his head. Um, mm -hmm. the, the other major talking point speculation that I'm seeing at the moment is that they're angling for an acquisition by Microsoft. And this is something that, according to to one person behind the scenes, uh, anecdotally and and potentially unreliably said was what was happening back in 2014, um, around 2014, 2015, just before this guy was brought in, there was a big push to try and sell the company to Microsoft behind closed doors. And there's a lot of people saying that um, that's potentially what they're trying to do now. Now, I, I actually think it would probably be a good buy for Microsoft for, for a bunch of reasons, but I won't go into that now. Uh, I've completely lost my train of thought. What was the thing that I said I was going to come back to? Oh, Iron Source. That's right. So, um, yeah. So, so, and how it ties into the runtime fee. So, yes. One of the things that people have observed about, about this new runtime fee and about what Unity seemed to be doing as a business is that they are pushing for revenue based games, right? So, if you're if you sell a game for twenty five bucks and no one ever pays any more money for it, right? And they install it a hundred times, a thousand times, you're going to lose money, right? Yep. But if you're selling a game that's free to play, and it makes money through microtransactions or ads or ongoing annuity revenue, um, then you're going to be less affected by this runtime fee. Not only that, it makes it less of a problem predicting your costs because you can kind of predict try and predict ongoing costs yeah. along with ongoing revenue. Whereas if you're just selling at a single unit price, having to factor in unknown ongoing costs is much more problematic. I mean, that's that's the current business model of flavor, right? It absolutely is, yeah. The recurring, yeah. The recurring revenue. Yeah. Now, does that work for games? Yes, absolutely. Does it work for all games? Definitely not. Um, and, you know... It, is that going to piss off people that are, you know, have games as a hobbyist or passion project or these small indie studios? Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I can see why. I can see why. But you know, the the the, the successful. I, I think the statistic is it, it's not even eighty twenty. It's more like ninety five five. I think like five percent with games that are free to play. It's something like five percent of users that are paying users, and of them, not not of them in total. It's something like. The top one percent of paying users pay, you know, close to one hundred percent of the revenue that, that a game makes. Yeah, because it's well, a whole other topic. Maybe this is something we should talk talk about another time. But it, it's an addiction, right? So for 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 these people that spend this kind of money on it, it's an addiction. Absolutely, and you know, a, a lot of the big gaming houses, particularly the mobile ones, they spend a lot of money in that space, don't they, to make sure that they they keep you coming back. Josh, yeah. it's interesting. Like, I just keep coming back to it. One simple, one company making a simple change that on the on the um, at the high level, it could be quite innocuous. Like, okay, there's going to be a lot of companies, a lot of people that find this um, quite detrimental to them. But to a lot of people, I look at it like myself when I read it. I'm like, you know, this company needs to make their money. That you know, they're in their right to decide their revenue model absolutely but then when you start digging into it and then you it sort of starts to for lack of a better term or lack of a better analogy you know it's an onion right yeah you feel yeah. that out layer and you're getting into all the different topics that we've spoken about like how it's the leadership side of it the revenue side how it um it affects everyone 
but no, I, the reason I wanted to bring that up is other, something else that I've just recent that recently came across my feed was from the the guys that built Basecamp Thirty Seven Signals. Yeah, so that's David uh, Heinmeier Hansen and Jason Freed. I saw a post from Jason last week or the week before, basically arguing against the whole subscription model. Right. Interesting. Right. Not just arguing against it, but got a product or a suite of products in the pipeline, which will be single fee, buy your license and move on. Basically, yeah. the like, just see if I can bring it back up, but arguing against that whole SaaS subscription model because, you know. That's very interesting, yeah. especially coming from him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But these days, like, everyone's heading down that path, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I know I am with, you know, with some of the products I'm working on, that's that's the kind of goal. Well, absolutely, absolutely, because it's the one that makes makes sense, and it's the one that it's the one that's most scalable, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you if you look at how we as software developers consume our kind of raw materials, right? The, let me put that another way: the the raw materials in terms of what our products run on, right? Yep. It used to be that a business that wanted to install your your product would need to do an annual budget. Um, and they would need to budget for your software license and potentially an ongoing software maintenance agreement. Um, now, the maintenance agreement, of course, gives you access to updates. It was it, it, traditionally it been if you buy a piece of software, you can use that in perpetuity, but you pay a maintenance agreement and then you get support and you get software updates, right? Yeah. Um, so you need to budget for that and you would need to budget for your infrastructure. So you would buy some infrastructure, you would do some capacity planning and you would say this is going to last X number of years. Um, and I'm going to have to, you know, pay a, a hardware maintenance fee for that as well. Um, and you factor it in that way. And then you know that, you know, in five years time, I'm going to have to refresh this stuff and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But the way that we consume those raw materials now is differently. And it, it's, it's in the cloud when we put our software on the cloud and those cloud providers have a monthly fee and you kind of consume it like a utility. Now it took a while to get there. And um, there was a lot of cloud providers saying, um, yeah, you can save money and, you know, you can pay for what you use by using you know, cloud um, rather than buying all this infrastructure up front. And by the way, to get the best pricing, you need to commit to a hundred thousand or a million dollars up front. <laughs> so, but we've got there now. But but yeah, I mean, the the point of the, the business is done month to month now, and that's just that's just kind of how it works. It is, and I, and I think it depends who your as a software vendor. It, it depends who your customers are, and I think if your customers are businesses, I think that subscription model is not going anywhere. But I think if your customers are consumers, the subscription model just it, it still isn't sitting right with a lot of people. Now, now we are we are getting used to it a lot. So Microsoft have done really well with the Microsoft 365 program. I don't think I've heard of anyone buying a copy of Office and certainly haven't heard of anyone not buying an Office, uh, a copy of Office and still using it mm -hmm. um, for, for a long time. And, and you know, because the, the, the they found the price point that makes sense. It's it's easy for most people. So, you know, we are we are on the consumer side getting, you, you know, getting buttered up for this con the subscription model. Obviously, streaming services we all pay for now, Spotify, Apple Music, all that sort of stuff, even in gaming. Right. So there's there's Game Pass on PC and Xbox, uh, PlayStation Plus. All of the gaming platforms have their subscription service as well, and those yeah. are even those are changing now as well. So it used to be you you pay a fee and then you get access to, you know this this library of games, and you also get access to games that you keep. Um, even that's changing now. So no no, you'll pay uh, an amount of money, and while you're paying that, you get access to whatever we say is on there. 
Um, and when you don't pay it anymore, you don't get access to any of it. So, you know, con- consumers are being conditioned to, to uh, you know, accept this subscription model as well. But I, I do think that uh, on the consumer side, there is still a much bigger push to, to towards that attitude of you buy it, you own it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, um, I think you're right there. And I think one of the things that makes it more valuable too for businesses is you're always on the latest greatest. Latest, greatest hardware, latest, greatest versions, right? Whereas back in the day where you per, you bought your own license, you got you got version one, and then you had to pay to get version two anyway. Yeah. Right? Then you might get your minor updates, but to get the major updates, you always had to pay. Yeah. So now when you're paying monthly, you're always getting the latest, greatest, right? You're always yeah. going to be at the top of the game, which I think is quite valuable. But I agree. Yeah. consumers... B to C, I don't think they get that same value proposition, which is sort of the point that you're making there. Yeah. But the other thing too, interestingly, and I'm trying to find, again, find the article that I saw, DHH from 37 Signals has recently been saying they've moved back. They've done the exact opposite. They've moved away from the cloud. Even though they've got a SaaS application, they're moving out of the cloud and the headline from this article from the 15th of this month, our cloud exit has exit has already yielded a $1 million a year in savings. Yeah. I, I haven't seen that one, but I saw his last one, uh, the one that said we're leaving the cloud. Yeah. So I, I think, again, yes, there's the argument that the cloud and that utility, using the cloud as a utility to run your business, there is a an argument for that, yes. But I think, as you can see here, you know, once you get to a certain um, a certain size, threshold. yeah, once you get to a certain threshold, I think you're getting a um, you're getting oh, diminishing returns, right? To a yeah, point where yeah, yeah. you're actually better off building it, building it, and running it yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the same question applies to what we do as well, right? Software. You know, there's 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 a point at which buying something, build versus buy, is you know. Is always the, the that's always the question, isn't it? No, yeah. it's always build, build, build. Yeah, build. of course. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't have a job. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. well, same. Yeah. All right. So, look, I, I'm interested in um, just wrapping up this this chat about Unity. I think there's you know there's a lot that we we've talked about there and and kind of in the broader context. But what what's what, what's your prediction? What what do you think is going to happen as a result of this? Because I I've got my own ideas. I'm interested in what you think. From what I'm seeing. They're going to, well, my, my prediction would be, as we've already seen, they've started to roll back those updates. I yeah. think they'll probably roll them back a little bit more, soften them a little bit more for the for the smaller player, but they'll still stick to it, right? I still yeah. see them looking at that, um, that runtime fee, that revenue share type model. I yeah. can see that hanging around. What happens in the way of the company, I think, when you get to public companies and the way they're run and the politics and the strategies that happen there, that's well beyond my my level of expertise. Yeah. But I don't know. I reckon you'll find, yeah, like you said, if he's in there, if that was part of his um, remit for coming on board. Well, I mean, I, mean, I don't know that, but, yeah. That was... If it was, if it was, then he'll keep pushing it. He'll hang around until he's made all the changes that were asked of him, you know, it starts getting a bit, 
turning the books around, trimming the fat, start making a bit more revenue, and then, yeah, he'll probably fade off into the distance. Because, okay. you know, if, like you said, if he's, got, if he's got history, chances are he'll get bored. You know, once that problem's solved, and I think I've had this discussion with you in the past, you know, once that's problem solved, you've got to find your new problem. Yeah, I mean, I I don't disagree. However, there, you know, he has been there for nearly ten years, um, and you know, he does get paid tens of millions of dollars a year. So he'd have to be very, very bored, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know, that's a certain person, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, if I there, there's some people, if you're getting paid ten million dollars a year, they probably only work for one year and never again. And then there's other people that, if they're getting paid a hundred million dollars a year, would work for the next fifty years. Yeah, two different types of people. Yeah, very true. All right, so so what I think, right? It, 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 I think it will be a long time before we'll actually see the fallout of this. Uh, I, I think that this incident will have quite a long tail. One of the comments that we see coming up a lot is, well, you know, I've spent four, six, eight years, three years, two years, whatever, on this game. I'm not going to jump ship now, and it might take another two, four, six, eight years to finish the game. Mm-hmm. So I think I think what you said is right that you know they're not going to change the new policy. They might soften it a bit, and I and I suspect what will happen is it'll be like the the frog in boiling water analogy, which is completely false, by the way. But you know I, I think three months from now, everyone will have forgotten about this, and no one will be talking about it anymore. And then you know it will actually not three months from now. Three months from now is precisely when people will be talking about it because that will be when the new Yep. new policy kicks in um but you know uh, it, yeah so over the next month or two people will forget about it come january you know people will be talking about it again and i think the fuss will die down and over the next 6 12 24 months you know unity will see well you know we didn't lose all our customers we didn't lose all our market share we didn't lose our um mm-hmm. stock price you know we didn't you know we didn't you know have all our shareholders screaming for blood and and I think they will then that will embolden them, and I think they will revisit this, and they will, you know, go the other other way. So they won't be softening it; they'll be hardening it. Yeah, um, and then I think, you know, then I think we'll start hitting the phase where uh, people are moving to other game engines. And, and I think I, I think the real consequences of this we're not going to see for probably two, three, maybe four years. Okay. So okay, last final thought then: if people are moving away onto other engines. Is that a jump onto Unreal or is that a jump onto maybe another open source one or one of the smaller players? Is there an opportunity for those smaller players to pick up the scraps and actually make a name for themselves? Yeah, well, uh, you know, like in my view, um, Unity fills a gap that was left by XNA. Do you remember XNA? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I I dabbled with XNA back in the day. So... um, uh one of the possibilities is that that microsoft acquisition that people are talking about does occur right and if that that could change things but that aside people jumping ship what a lot of people will go to unreal engine uh, uh you know this this comment that the unreal engine is for bigger triple a games and unity is for indie games is is i think where it comes from is that the unreal unreal engine is more targeted at um artists so 3d artists and I think that's why a lot of the games that you see coming out of Unreal Engine look a lot more polished because the people that are making them are, are making, you know, art. Yeah. Um, and then the way that they put logic in it is through this blueprint system where you drag and drop boxes and connect them. And you can do something similar in Unity. And you can also write code 
uh, to do your logic in Unreal as well, but that that's C plus plus rather than C sharp. Um, and and that actually, by the way, I, I think that ties in just what I was saying about um, if Unity filling the gap in X, from the X and A left, and why Microsoft might be interested, is it plays into their cross-platform C sharp story, which yeah. you know that I'm very interested in. So yeah, so I think people will go to Unreal, uh, and Unreal has you know has a, a a much higher threshold for for revenue share. I think it's a million dollars as well. Um, but that's you know that's just a million dollars, right? So there isn't a, a smaller tier below that. I think the revenue share is higher once you hit that threshold. Mm-hmm. But but you know a, a lot of these people that are making games with Unity are, are, would dream of getting anywhere near that, and are never going to. So a lot of them may be interested commercially. Um, there is an open, a very popular open source game engine called Godot. Yep. Uh, which is getting a lot of attention at the moment. It's nowhere near as polished as Unity right now. Uh, but it, it is growing, um, and it's growing in terms of polish and functionality and users and, and contributors and everything else. And I think by the time that crisis point comes for Unity, which will be between two and four years, I think Godot will be a very different yeah. engine than it is now and will be a very serious contender. And, and, I, and I think between those two ends of the spectrum, there's plenty of room for anyone that wants to jump ship from Unity to go either way. Yeah. Like, I don't, I, I don't think Unity will be sitting in this middle ground anymore where people will say, well, I don't quite want that and I don't quite want this. It, you know, there'll be an overlap on that threshold. And, and I think, you know, I think anyone that's using Unity at that time will be very comfortable with their options. Mm. Okay. Well, I guess stay tuned and we, we might revisit this in a couple of years' time or six months' yeah, time and yeah. see where we're at. Interesting uh, uh, microcosm into... All these other issues we've spoken about, and certainly an interesting study in leadership. I think I think so. But oh, really, one more thing we need to talk about because if we if we do consider ourselves the beer-driven devs, yeah, we at this stage still have not discussed anything about beer. No, we haven't. But I've seen you've been drinking a beer, and I'm sure you've seen I've been drinking one. I have. I have. Yours looks quite dark at the moment. Yeah, mine is. An, it's an imperial stout. Yeah, one of your own. One of my own, and it's not bad at all, actually. Yeah, not yeah. bad. Um, it's been aging for about a year and a half, and it, it is it does get better. It's getting better all the time. Yeah. I, I brewed this because a funny story. My mum, who doesn't drink at all, uh, we went to Dublin for a family holiday about twenty years ago, and she got very into the Guinness. So she was there. Uh, she was drinking a fair bit of Guinness. I mean, by a fair bit, it would be what we would consider a few sips, I guess. But by her standards, you know, she had a few a few half pints of Guinness throughout the trip and got a bit tipsy and, and absolutely loved it. And when we went back to the, the UK and she tried a Guinness and she was like, no, it's not the same. And it's not, you know, the Irish would always say it's not the same and they're right. It isn't. So, so yeah, so my mum uh, is turning 70 this year and was due to be visiting us uh, here in Australia and my sister in New Zealand for, for her birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, so we for that about a year and a half ago i thought well i'll get this stout on the go because yeah it'd be a shame for my mum to come all this way and and not drink any of my beer yep oh, um, awesome. so yeah so i've got a couple of cases of this so she's not she's not coming now this time but she'll she'll be here next year sometime so i'll keep those those cases aside for her keep it keep it aging gives you more time to perfect the recipe true true i i, I really i think I, I feel like a stout is a winter drink so um this is probably getting towards one of the last weeks that i will want to drink this uh but you know if i start brewing now it will be starting to get aged enough for for next winter yeah i i once did a um a nice stout that 
I deliberately made it a bit stronger because I wanted to age it a bit longer too. And I dry hopped it with some wood chips from a rum barrel, I think it was. So it gave it sort of that really rummy, smoky flavour. Yeah. That worked well. I don't think it lasted a year and a half. Yeah. But, and and that's because I think I ended up drinking all of it. But um, no, that was good. It's just something different. If you want to try a different um, different stout, it goes well with that sort of heavier, stronger beer. Yeah. I mean, this definitely wouldn't have lasted this long if I wasn't specifically keeping it aside. Yep. Um, but yeah. <laughs> It, it, it's quite nice. I'm, I'm definitely enjoying it. It's um, it's it's fairly light for a stout, and it's quite sweet. But but you know, as as I as it's aging, it's getting more of that kind of bitter, coppery flavour coming in. Mm-hmm. So no, I'm enjoying it. What, what are you drinking? Mine, I don't know. I can't remember. This <laughs> is one of those ones I found at the bottom of the fridge. It's probably been probably about six months old. This was a friend of mine bought too much grain. So he bought too much grain, called me up one day and said, I've got this extra grain. Did you um did you want to use it for a brew? So basically I used his recipe with whatever hops I had in the fridge or at the time. I can't even remember. So it's a bit of a mongrel beer, really. So I don't I don't know what's exactly what's in it. I can't remember what the grain bill was. Um do, do you keep a journal? Yes and no. I tr- I write everything down, whether or not it's in the same place that I left it, or I can find it again. Yeah. Um, I do use Brewsmith. Yep. Um, which I find is a decent app just to um, keep track of it and to actually put together a recipe. And, you know, as we as we progress here, we might be able to share the recipes. Can we? In the um, yep. show notes, I guess. We yeah. can do that. Um, if there's anything worth brewing and drinking. But, yeah, this one's – I think I've found another one or two bottles left in the fridge, but I need to actually put another brew on. Interestingly, I've got a mead going at the moment. So oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Just something, just try, thought I'd try something different. So that was done a couple of uh, – beginning of this month. Um, it's really starting to clarify now. So, I don't know, maybe another couple of weeks and I'll bottle that. That would have gone down really well. Um, you know, a friend of ours who had a Viking-themed party a few months ago. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, I actually yeah. took a few bottles of this. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was a hit, yeah, for sure. It wasn't as good then as it is now, actually. I have to say it's definitely better now. Yeah. 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 This has been my second mm. mead I've ever made, so I don't know what it's going to be like, but I thought this time just to try something different, I've thrown some uh, stick of cinnamon in there and a bit of orange peel. Just to, yeah, with the intention, hopefully, to get something for Christmas. Oh, uh, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, something a little bit Christmassy. And Very nice. That's it. So, I think just to close out, the only other thing I was going to sort of raise with you earlier is um, maybe just closing out with a shameless plug section. You go for it. Yeah. yeah if there's you anything that you want to you talk about, anything you want to you want to plug. Um, uh, yeah, well, I, I've already sh- kind of shamelessly plugged my game. I, I haven't really. I hinted at it. Oh, okay. So Liam is Liam is uh, holding up a copy of my book, uh, .NET Maui in Action, which um, I have been shamelessly plugging for months now. So um, I, w- I wasn't going to mention it to be honest, but seeing as you brought it up, thank you. Well, yes, I I mean, that's why the section's called Shameless Plug. Yeah, actually, um, on that I have a kind of mini celebration slash post launch launch for that coming up. 
Um, if you'd like to come along, that will be a neutral way. Count me in. Definitely. Awesome. Count cool. me in. Good. Cool. Um, and then I guess my shameless plug is the business I started in July this year, NCube Solutions. We're in the world of enterprise development. I like to say problem solving. So we use software to solve problems. Um, hit up the website and yeah, I think that's it. Fantastic. Congratulations again on starting the business. Well, thank you. And congrats on the uh, book. I think that's that's more of an effort. I don't know if I could ever do that, but good on you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, I'm sure you could if you put your mind to it, whether you'd want to or not, especially after hearing me whinge about it for two years. True. All right. Well, uh, thank you for the shameless plug for my book. And uh, thank you very much for the chat. As always, it's been a pleasure. Likewise. And thanks, everyone, for joining us tonight. And we'll catch you all in two weeks' time for the next episode of The Beer Driven Devs. Catch you in two weeks' time. Cheers, Liam. Cheers. The Beer Driven Devs podcast is recorded and produced on Dharawal and Darkinjung land. 